This is an ABC podcast. This is Blueprint for Living. I'm Jonathan Green. Time for Lost and Found. This week, Napoli. Napoli, the city. Robin Thomas is Associate Professor of Art History at the Pennsylvania State University. Robin, Naples, I guess the word that first comes to mind is chaos, and the one that flows quickly after that is is beauty. Uh, I think it's a good descriptor, certainly, uh, especially given the fact that uh, it is still today one of the most densely populated cities in Europe and was, you know, one of the most populous altogether in the, the period from about 1400 to 1800. So that conditioned a lot of, of what you experience today. You know, you're, we're still living with a kind of pre-modern city in some ways with the, the chaos and, and, yes, the beauty too, the beauty of, mm. of, of the buildings. And that tells us a lot, I think, about how humans might operate in an urban setting with perhaps greater feeling for each other. It, it's true. I mean, I think one feels the humanity of a city so much more deeply there. Um, and, and that comes with all of the, the good and the bad of humanity in some ways, you know, at times, uh, mostly the good. And uh, that's what I find so ex- extraordinary about being there that uh, life is, it's alive. And many, you know, many uh, Italian cities I'm most familiar with, but European cities, they feel like museum specimens of themselves. Mm. And Naples resists that so much, you know. Naples resists that with, with a ferocious zeal. I mean, to, to, <laughs> it's true, it's true. To walk those long, narrow, tall canyons of, of streets with so much life right on the pavement with people living absolutely juxtaposed to the pedestrian space of the city, there must be, the visitor senses, such a sense of, of village and community for the people that live there. Well, there are. I mean, there are very distinct districts uh, of the city, and, and each has its own identity. That said, there's less of the kind of uh, social stratification one sometimes finds within neighborhoods. And so in the oldest part of Naples, uh, you'll find, you know, someone living right on the street in a very humble apartment and uh, an aristocrat in the same building, a professor, a student. All of it's brought together in a very, very close space. And so, yeah, the, the districts of the city have always been an important part of its identity. Um, administratively, even, those districts were uh, what governed Naples um, in the city government until about 1800. And it's, it's, a, it's a city pushed in upon itself by geography. Explain the geography of the city to us. Well, you know, it's on the coast, but of course the hills are quite steep behind and they press close. And that forces the city just kind of occupy kind of a bowl or what a lot of people described it as in earlier times as a theater because they would approach it by sea and they would see kind of a raid in front of them, this kind of sloping land up until you reached a mountain kind of backing it behind. Um, 
And then to the east, it couldn't expand very far because of the area where the, the train station is now was a swamp or, or swampy land. And so uh, it was very closely packed. And you combine that with the fact that there was incredible immigration from the countryside of the kingdom of the two Sicilies, which is Naples was the capital of. Uh, and you get this population boom that various administrators, rulers try to solve. But ultimately, the city just grows up vertically um, as, you know, a kind of organic response to that. A very organic city. And, and I guess it, it deters slightly the northern European with its its very sweaty compression, with the, with the energy, with the confronting humanity of the place. Yeah, very much so. The streets that you're on are oftentimes, you know, Greek streets, ancient Greek, the dimensions of them are. So they, they were, you know, those streets are for a, a much smaller city than Naples became too. And so you're right there next to it, you know. You have no personal spaces at a premium, right? Uh, but uh, the the amazing street culture that's a part of that. One's, one's gaze is often very close down, even though you kind of look up and admire these escarpments of buildings on either side. The density of people keeps you kind of focused right there at street level as you walk through it. Robin Thomas, thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Felia Allen is Senior Lecturer in Italian and Politics at the University of Bath and author of The Invisible Kimura. Naples has a, has a reputation as, as something of a, a headquarters for crime. Is that fair? I suppose in national in, and international newspapers it's fair, but at the same time we've got to remember that Naples is a cosmopolitan city and therefore is a city that has many of the problems that other big cosmopolitan cities have. So I don't think it's fair in the sense of saying it's unusual. At the same time, clearly Naples also has um, a criminal group that has originated from that city and lives there. And therefore, there are manifestations of that criminal group that become more obvious in certain points in time. So mm. Naples has many of the problems of normal big cosmopolitan cities, but at the same time, it's accentuated by the presence of uh, a, an important criminal organization, an important Italian mafia. Well, indeed, so the, the Neapolitan. Mafia, the, the Camorra. What is the the penetration of that body into the, the social and the political fabric of, of Naples? Naples is interesting because I think, in a way, it's kind of the, the crime reflects the city to a certain extent, and they're very much interlinked, and that you can't really understand Naples without understanding the Neapolitan Camorra. It's often said that there isn't one, just just one Camorra, but many Camorras, because the Camorra clans, the Camorra families, reflect the geographical districts that they exist in and that they live in. So the Neapolitan Camorra seeks to control a local territory because ultimately it wants power and money. If we keep that in mind, then we can see that um, the Camorra is very powerful in certain areas and perhaps less powerful in others. But it seeks power and that power is the territory and therefore it seeks to control sometimes the daily lives of individuals and specifically their members. It seeks to control 
or the local activities of businesses and also perhaps um, the political decisions of local councils in order to gain more power and more money. So when you ask me what is the penetration of the Camorra, mm. in terms of politics, it's probably less in the city because it's more difficult to do that and therefore you can see a greater penetration at the political level in the province of Naples and in the hinterland. But in terms of social control, it is a presence, an important presence in certain districts. If you know what you're looking for, you can see it. And if you can't, you can also not see it. It's often said that Naples, there are two cities in Naples. There are parallel cities that, you know, some people can blissfully live without noticing it and others have to live with it every day. Is the pursuit of that power to support particular criminal enterprise or is it a pursuit of power for its own sake? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you can answer it both ways. Some people could suggest that it's in order to fulfil their criminal aim. Other people would suggest that power is ultimately what they want, regardless of everything else. I think the answer is probably slightly more subtle. It's kind of intertwined and interlinked. They want to pursue money, they, but you can do that through power. Mm. And the psychological aspect of power is important. The psychological, invisible aspects and values, such as reputation, just, such as looking good, you've got to remember that the Neapolitan Camorra compared to the Sicilian Mafia and the Andrangheta has always been considered, how can I put it, slightly weirder or slightly kind of um, <laughs> more interested in being openly recognised compared to the Sicilian Cosa Nostra bosses who always wanted to be invisible and not see, have their power um, acknowledged openly. Tommaso Buscetta, one of the first state witnesses, always said, we don't want to have anything to do with the Camorra because they're clowns. They always want to show off. They always want to attract attention. And that's not good for business. Sounds very Neapolitan, however. Filia, thank you so much. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about Naples and the Camorra. Dr Filia Allen. Robin Thomas. The Teatro San Carlo, the theater of, the, of San Carlo, uh, was, when it was built, the largest opera house in Europe and therefore the world. And it came in a city uh, that it, it, we, we think very much of popular Neapolitan songs as being, you know, O Sole Mio and things like that as a part of the life of the city. Well, already in the 17th, 18th century, Naples was known as the capital of the music world. And so this opera house that they build, and it's, it's sponsored by uh, the king of the two Sicilies, but is also public, is a part of uh, an effort to provide a, a dignified, noble, and, and really immense home for this art form uh, that had thrived in the life of Naples. Um, and so it's really a cultural center, kind of creating the, the infrastructure of culture that happens there. Now that opera house, the original was built in 1737. It burns and what we see today was rebuilt in the early 19th century, but the form is still the same. And the idea of this big public opera house uh, being provided by the state is uh, really quite novel at the time and very connected to the artistic life of the city. Napoli, the music. Andrew Ford, a Neapolitan song, quite a thing. Neapolitan song is two things, really. It's folk songs. I mean, there are traditional Neapolitan songs. 
but they became increasingly popular in the 19th century, so much so that they started a competition to write new Neapolitan songs. I suppose it's a little bit like the folk song revival after the Second World War, which eventually leads to Bob Dylan, who isn't actually singing folk songs, but at least at the start of his career is singing songs that sound like folk songs. So you get the... The, the new versions as well as the traditional versions. Mm. So Santa Lucia, which everybody knows, is a traditional song, whereas O Sole Mio is, is a, a composed uh, song in uh, 1898. And these songs would, would be sung sort of across the breadth of the city. Would they be immensely popular? Well, immensely popular, yes. I, I mean, this is, as I said, this is the, the Piedi Grotto festival which was established in 1830 and that's where this competition happened but by the time of um, well by the time that Dos Solimio was composed um, it had become a, a global phenomenon particularly big in the United States where Caruso was was singing these songs and, and making them famous so they really did take off in an extraordinary way and you know uh, uh, after that, uh, along comes Elvis Presley singing his version of <laughs> o, o Sole Mio, It's Now or Never. So they're that much uh, part of the uh, consciousness of, of, uh, of the world by that point. I think there's a, there's, a, there's a strand of Neapolitan consciousness broadly which consists of Elvis Presley and a slice of pizza. <laughs> yes, that's right, that's right. But uh, this happened really early on in the, in the piece um, um, because there's a, there's a lovely story of uh, Richard Strauss, the German composer who's 22 years old and he's on his first trip to Italy and he hears this song called Funiculi Funicula which he assumes is a folk song and so he puts it in his first tone poem Aus Italien from Italy and it turns out not to have been a folk song it's actually only six years old uh, when he hears it uh, but everybody's singing it it's been a huge hit and he and you can see why he thought it was a folk song it's very much in the tradition of the Neapolitan song anyway eventually he got sued by the composer of Funiculi Funicula um, for having <laughs> nicked his tune because he does it you know the whole of his final movement is based on this tune which he thought was a folk melody um, and since strauss himself was one of the leading lights in the reform of copyright law in the early 20th century one can only say he was hoist by his own petard andrew ford thank you so very much you're welcome you're listening to lost and found this week on naples Robin Thomas. The Guglia of San Gennaro, this tower, incredible tower, is really a, a piece of a votive architecture. It connects back to temporary processional sculptures and things that would be carried through the city. And, and after the patron saint of Naples, Gennaro, um, delivers the city from the devastation of the 1631 eruption of Mount Vesuvius, um, they decide to erect this permanent monument. And it's kind of looks like it could be a column, and yet the column has grown volutes and um, other marble ornaments as it rises up to the pinnacle where a bronze statue of the patron saint of Gennaro uh, stands and looks over the city. And it really kind of guides you as you walk through the dense city. You look up and it's kind of a, an opening up and an opening up of your vista upward um, as this kind of votive offering and a reminder of his protection. Uh, 
Napoli, the pizza. Hi, my name is Johnny DiFrancesco and I'm going to demonstrate how we can make Neapolitan pizza in under 90 seconds. So Johnny, a special thing happened to you in 2014. You were named the, the, the pizza maker, the best pizza maker in the world. Uh, that's correct, yep. That is an extraordinary honour and that's all about the, the margarita pizza, the, the key food of Naples. You know, margarita pizza is a staple dish for, for Napoli. I mean, you think about Napoli, you think about a margarita. Um, so for me, it was an honour that I actually won making a Napolitan pizza in Italy, you know, and taking home the title back in 2014. I mean, that was amazing. Just that achievement, especially being of Napolitan heritage. My father, you know, being Napolitan, that was a massive honour for us. Tell us the key elements in that pizza, because it's deceptively simple. Yeah, look, people say that Napolitan pizza, or the margarita is the most simplest pizza to make. I actually tell people it's the hardest pizza to make, and, and the reason behind that is because, you know, the dough is one of the most important parts of, of any pizza, and it has so little ingredients on it that you can't hide anything. But no pineapple here in front of us. No, no pineapple, no, not at all. Okay, I mean, let's go into the detail of those ingredients. I mean, the, the tomato, the variety. Yeah, so tomato sarmazzano comes from uh, from Napoli. We've got, you know, the, the volcanic, um, naturally heated soil from Vesuvio. So that's really important. Nowhere else in the world. You can't grow that anywhere else in the world. And, and okay, the cheese is, of course, the second most important thing. Yeah, so the cheese we use, uh, Fiore di Latte. And also, um, we also use a buffalo mozzarella. So Philly Lutz is a cow's milk, and buffalo mozzarella, obviously, from uh, buffalo milk. OK, we're ready to go here. We have, we have some dough uh, out, ready to be, ready to be formed. At, at the moment, it's the size of maybe of a little saucer, and it's going to grow. Tell us how that's going to happen. So you're going to see my technique is a slapping technique. Uh, a lot of people use a lot of different techniques, you know. Uh, people use a rolling pin, other, other pizza makers, and I call it the DJ uh, stretching on the bench, which um, we don't do. So you'll notice that I'm going to leave a nice crust, or a cornichon as we call it. So I start an inch in from the bottom, and what I do is I push down. What I'm doing is I'm pushing all the gases into the crust, and they're really important because a lot of people don't eat the crust, and I say to them, well, that's the most important part, especially in Neapolitan pizza, because it actually helps you digest the rest of the ingredients. And once I put this in the oven, what will happen is you'll see the, the sides puff up really quickly. And that means that the gases are developing. So when you're stretching with a rolling pin or stretching the other style, the DJ style, what happens is you're releasing all those gases. What I tell people is that you're releasing one of some of the most important fundamentals behind the dough. What comes next? So next we're going to put some uh, tomato, so some sarmazzano. You can see the beautiful colour of this tomato. And as you you'll find that there's not a lot of seeds in Sarmazzano, right? And the other really important thing is we don't bar mix or blend our tomato. So we'll either hand crush or put it through a mouli. reason why we do that is if you bar mix, you will crack the seeds. Cracking the seeds, you're going to transfer this bitterness because the, the seeds are bitter, right? So if you break them, you're already destroying your tomato. So again, taking care of the product. Buying really good quality product and do very little to it. Um, the next... Uh, ingredient is going to be some uh, mozzarella, so we get some fiore di latte. That's a good generous amount too. It is, and you'll find, uh, so this is actually not the size of the pizza. So you'll see the next step that happens after this. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, so we're going to put some beautiful fresh, fresh um, basil. I like basil, so I like putting a little bit extra. 
And there it is, the, the flag of Italy on a plate. Right, yeah. And the last very, very important ingredient is extra virgin olive oil. Now, we put extra virgin olive oil before it goes in the oven because it'll reach at about 80 degrees, releasing all the beautiful aromas. What happens is a lot of people put the olive oil after the pizza comes out. You haven't done anything. All you've done is put oil on your pizza, pizza. right? That's a good, a good slosh of oil there too, isn't it? Yeah, because we want to emul- that will emulsify the, the sauce as well. It'll keep it nice and and uh, liquidy and juicy, and uh, you know, again, helping the sauce release its uh, flavours as well. So describe. I mean, it's an interesting thing because the the crust, that raised crust, it acts almost like a, a bowl to contain what's going to become a reasonably liquid central yeah, so part of the pizza. It, it retains all that within the pizza. People that have never eaten Neapolitan pizza or eaten it for the first time, they say, oh, it's quite liquidy, it's soft. It's, it's supposed to be soft, pliable, very easy to digest, and it is liquidy because we're using fresh ingredients. Then what we do is with the crust, is we, we mop it all up, right? It's the best part, that's why this is perfect. Now, it's grown from maybe sort of 20 centimetres to 30 centimetres across, right, yeah. and yeah, it looks, that's perfect. In and it goes. One motion, straight in the oven, temperature in there? Uh, we're running at about 400 degrees. How many of these would you make a day? Look, any, anywhere between 600 and 1,000 a day. Get pretty good at that. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> and the pizza is slowly being spun out of the oven and delivered to the plate cut with a pizza wheel and the, the, the cheese, the tomato, the oil are a liquefied mass to the centre of the, and it was smelling now. That is very fine. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. You happy with that one? Look, for the first pizza of the day, it's pretty good. Um, by about the time we open up for lunchtime, oven will be perfect uh, for cooking. But I always say, the first couple of pizzas of the day, we never serve. We always just make, get rid of them until we know that it's like the first espresso yeah, pretty much exactly so you know when you're making your coffee you never serve your first coffee Johnny thank you so much that's a, a wonderful insight thank you so much Robin Thomas the church and convent of San Gregorio Armeno is a little tiny building in the one of the densest areas of the city. It's the street very famous for the creche figures that are sold there, the presepe. But the, walking into the church, um, you come into what's maybe a not so distinguished a space in terms of its size or its plan, but absolutely encrusted with polychrome marble, which is what um, Neapolitan Baroque architecture was so characterized by, a kind of plain exterior that holds a opulent and rich and multicolored interior. And the other thing interesting about it is what's connected to it. The church is small, but the convent is huge because the people who occupied the space behind the grates that are very visible and visible inside the church uh, were aristocratic nuns. They were, the, say, the second or third daughters of noble families that uh, they couldn't afford to, they, because of inheritance rules, did not pass on uh, property to, but gave uh, dowries to go into convents. And so these were um, really these huge oases for aristocratic women in the heart of the city. Part of the opulence of the interior is part of the sort of religious experience. And so there is extraordinary poverty around. And yet 
the devotion inside the church is very rich, and it, it's part and parcel with the life of the city. Naples is a paradise. In it, everyone lives in a sort of intoxicated self-forgetfulness. It, it is even so with me. I scarcely know myself. I seem to myself quite an altered man. Yesterday, I said to myself, either you've always been mad, or you are so now. Goethe, Letters from Italy. You've been listening to Lost and Found on Blueprint for Living, an armchair guide to Napoli. You heard from Robin Thomas, Associate Professor of Art History at the Pennsylvania State University, Dr. Felia Allam, Senior Lecturer in Italian and Politics at the University of Bath and author of The Invisible Camorra, Andrew Ford, Composer, Writer and Presenter of RN's Music Show, and Johnny DeFrancesco, World's Greatest Pizza Maker in 2014 and Founder of Melbourne's 400 Gradi. Producers are Mira Adler-Gillies, Buffy Gorilla and Sylvie Van Wall. Technical production by Carey Dell. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.